If you listen to Irish Radio Canada's Home Abroad, and it would have been in 2022, I think, I bumped into Jazz Gurham at Collision in Toronto. And Collision is where uh, the the Irish version of Collision is Web Summit, which started out in Dublin and moved to Portugal. And North American versions were established. And it is a, a tech um, web marketplace where it brings together all the various components of the industry relative to the internet and uh, I got to talk to Jazz and uh, first thing that struck me was I was listening to a Northern Ireland accent and, <laughs> uh, that is always the, a good start uh, but Jazz graduated from Queen's University in Belfast and after that he worked with the Northern Ireland Civ- uh, Civil Service for uh, about two years, 2001, 2003. And from there, <laughs> he moved to Japan, Japan sure um, for about six years before migrating to Toronto, where he now lives with his family. Jazz, thanks a million for coming along. And I'm interested in hearing all about your story. Oh, thanks for having me, Austin. Um, that's starting right. Out, yeah, starting out the north of Ireland, uh, your your parents immigrated into the north. They did. They didn't uh, immigrate together. Um, my mother was, she's younger than my father, but she emigrated from Punjab in India to to Northern Ireland directly. It was a, via boat in those days. It took months. Um, in, I think, 57. Um, I think my grandfather, her father, he was a military man formerly, um, had a friend who had made his way to Northern Ireland from having worked in England and said, look, there's opportunities here. I'll help you get set up in um, drapery. So basically, uh, he moved his family over. He moved first. The family came after. Very typical scenario even today. I work with immigrants coming to Canada for tech jobs, and many of them come first. Their family comes after. They get, they, they, they sort of get things set up. And, um, yeah, he sold he sold clothes material, trinkets, dresses, door-to-door in the Northern Irish countryside. He had his own route. He worked with um, a friend of his, and they had they sort of uh, coordinated together, but they had their own routes, and he did that. My mother was 10 years old whenever she moved. I think it was difficult for her, you know. It was very um, tough at that age, leaving friends, family, new language, new culture. And it's not new language, new culture as in today where everybody has awareness of languages and cultures because of the Internet, right? But in those days, it was compl- it was like moving from Earth to Mars. But um, she did okay. She went into school. She had uh, two brothers and two sisters, so re- reasonably large family, but maybe not by Irish standards in the 50s. Um and, um, yeah, that's how she ended up there. And my dad, he had a more fraught route to Ireland, I would say. He grew up in Punjab on a farm. Very poor childhood, you know. He had a goat when he was a kid. And before he went to school, he would milk that goat. And that milk was his breakfast, you know, one of those scenarios. And um very hardworking, my father, very intelligent man. Didn't have much formal education, but always had a dream to be do better and be better. and he moved, I think, in 61 or 62 when he was 21 or 22 um, to the UK with his brother and lived in a series of northern cities and Scottish cities working very hard manual labor jobs, foundries, factories, doing the shifts that the locals didn't want to do. 
he told me, I think it was Manchester, it might have been Derby, you know, they weren't allowed in the pub, the Indians, except for one day per week, and they were allowed in, and he said he cherished that one day a week because he could watch football on the TV and eat a pie. But uh, apart from that, you know, he'd be living in a room with three or four other guys just working their tails off, and the way that Indians are and families are, somebody knew from my mother's family and knew my dad and said, look, they're about the right age for getting married. Do you want to introduce them? My father-in-law met my dad, liked him right away. I said, this guy's a worker. He's honest. He's he's a straight shooter. So, um, yeah, he married my mom in 65, and he moved to Northern Ireland, and my father-in-law set him up in the drapery business too and gave him his own route and helped him a lot. He was uh, self-employed. He did that for years. My dad's a real <coughs> businessman. Um, he wasn't going to be doing just that for long. So uh, he saved and scrimped and he opened a dry cleaner store in the early 70s. And then following that, he bought a little bit of property in the town that we lived in, Straban, northwest of Northern Ireland near Derry. Um, and he opened a cl- women's clothing store. This is whenever small businesses were the boom, right? Pre-high street being taken over by the big names. And then we opened, my brothers were born in 66 and 68. I was born in 79. I think I was an accident, but that's all right. Um, so my brothers, you know, they left school, but they haven't done any O-levels or anything and joined the family business. We owned like a video library store when they were renting videos in those days. It was also an electronics store. Eventually put a sports store in the second floor of it. My brother opened a pub. So basically a family of small, small town entrepreneurs. Um, and um, yeah, that's the environment that I grew up in. Um, bringing you back then sure culturally you said you know your dad uh, it was a time when they were only allowed into the pub one day a week and um, you know things attitudes were very different and yet attitudes in many ways haven't changed Um, you know there's uh, many would claim attitudes have changed but far from it in other ways and particularly then when your family established in the north of Ireland the north of Ireland is very much a bipolar society. Absolutely, yeah. So if someone from the cultural outside and, you know, the the joke that's always told in is that someone goes in the north and they say they're a Jew. Well, are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, that, that resonates with me on a deep level, actually. You know, there, it's funny because it's true, right? I mean, it's like... It's like, are you are, are you a Republican Sikh or are you are you a loyalist Sikh? Um, and I grew up like Straban is a very nationalist town, ninety something percent plus. But I was sent to the mixed schools. My whole my my brothers went to St Coleman's Catholic School, St Mary's, the whole way. But my parents were like, okay, this 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 kid, we're going to try to give him a shot at going to university or whatever, because the other two left left very big in Indian families, right? Education. So right. I can add that put on me. But um, no, um, the schools I went to were mixed. So it was actually I'm in the middle of this like very nationalist town, but the school is like sixty percent. Unionist, kind of like I want to say Protestant because it's quite it's it's, it's, it's but 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 it's more complex than that. But sixty yeah. percent Protestant schools, right? So so um I had a flavor of both, and I always consider myself more Irish on the nationalist side, just because I think from a young age. I got more racist abuse from people from the other side, <laughs> you know. So it's like I, I pick my side. Like, these people aren't, aren't aren't really like uh bullying me or being racist towards me. I'm talking from primary school age. I kind of that created that dichotomy in my mind of like the, the, them and them. And I think that uh 
Uh, that that kind of prevails to this day, but not in any deep way. I've got friends from both sides of the of the, of the divide in Northern Ireland, and thankfully, pe- most people I know of my age are not aggressively politically inclined anymore. You know, um, they have preferences, but the people like peace more than anything else. But yeah, no, I was definitely more of a Catholic Sikh than a than a, than a Protestant Sikh because of that, <laughs> and that 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 carried through to my university days. You know, getting like racist abuse while playing football. In like um, South Belfast near the village, because there's like a football pitch there, and the the guys going past wearing the Rangers tops and whatever from that community, always the ones who are a bit more vitriolic with that type of abuse. Um, the older you get, the more you learn to deal with it and get the historical context, and so it doesn't like deeply hurt you as much anymore as it did when it was a kid. But yeah, um, it's it is a very bipolar society, and as someone who is kind of a third party. As a child, I felt like I had to pick a side because you don't want to be left out as a child, right? As you get, as you grow up and you develop your own knowledge about things and realize it's okay to be a third party. But when you're a kid, you, you don't, you, you want to be, you want to belong. So that's where I ended up. That's interesting because I was going to say, you know, in many ways, you would have been the fly on the wall. And yet you're telling me as the fly on the wall, you want to join one side or the other because you need to feel that sense of belonging. Yeah, Um, very much. Yeah, and yet, no matter how much of the side you choose, you're still from an element of a fly on the wall. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think as as I've matured and well grown into an adult, uh, how mature I am, I don't know. My wife tells me sometimes it's uh, it's up for debate. <laughs> but um, uh, as I have grown into an adult, I have developed more of a Punjabi identity, not Indian. People ask, do you feel more Indian or Irish? I'm like, I've never really felt Indian because India has 50 different cultures and 50 different languages. And, you know, genetically speaking, I'm people of Punjab like me are more tied to like the, the, the sort of Caucasus and, 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 and sort of Persian element over the last thousand years, sort of migrating over the mountains. But, um, uh, I, I very much feel Punjabi these days as well as Irish. They're intertwined and they're interchangeable. And I feel kind of like privileged to be able to be bicultural that way. I mean, I love to cook, right? And I dropped, I dropped a pic on Instagram yesterday. I've got an Instagram page. It's just for fun. I don't think I'm particularly. I, I, I say that was your Irish stew. Oh, you saw it? I did made a drop of Irish stew, <laughs> and I made it. I made it in like the old school way because I felt like it. Austin, just lamb, root veg, stock, and a long simmer. That's it. There was no, there's no garlic or no garnishments or anything like that. And I put a couple of dollops of mash in there, you know. So, you know, part of me feels very Irish. And I, I dropped that on my Facebook, and like all my friends are commenting on it about how hungry it made them and so on and so forth. But you look at my Instagram, you'll see it's. In a lot of Indian Punjabi food as well, right? So, I mean, that's, yeah. how I, that's how I convey my cultural sense a lot of the time is through cooking. And on the cooking side, because I did want to talk to you about that, uh, and I saw the, the Irish Stew post on Instagram. And, and the Instagram page, by the way, for that is eats underscore of underscore jazz, J-A-Z. Uh, and uh, you've picked yourself up eight, over 1,800 followers on that. So, yeah, so that's, orga- that's organic too, because I don't really spend any time on Instagram liking other people's stuff and trying to get them to follow me. So that's over since like pre-COVID, like maybe four or five years ago I started it, and then during yeah. COVID when there was a lot more time on our hands that first year, I like, did a lot of cooking. But um, now, now when it comes to cooking, using the word organic is, has a different meaning. Than oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. So, uh, um, but... Uh, and um, when it comes to your cooking as well, one of the, and you did say there, you, you did the Irish too. How much of the Irish menu would you then, okay, put on the table? I make scones. 
like stew. I'll do a good full Irish with the what black pudding with the black pudding and the white pudding if I can get it here. It's a bit tough to get sometimes. And the potato um, and the potato cakes. Oh, uh, why? I make the potato cakes. I, I do want to make. I haven't made soda bread. I've only made it once, but I haven't made it in years for right. for, 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 for for the for the Northern Irish, the Northern full Irish um, with yeah. the soda bread on there. Um, what else do I make? The Just bacon, lots, the of, bacon, I, lots of bacon and cabbage. Bacon and cabbage, yeah. Um, lots of like Irish style dinners, you know. Right. Whenever it's whenever it's like sausage, beans, and potatoes, my kids will go, "Oh, it's an Irish dinner." I'm like, "Yep, that's an Irish dinner." <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I want to take a short break, and then taking a short break, I'm going to ask you for a piece of music. All right. What so, are we going to play? So, given that. The artist is from my hometown of Straban, and let's face it, Straban isn't famous for a lot of famous people, and that uh, he has been name-dropped by some of the biggest artists around as being one of their favorites. Let's go with a really classic track from Paul Brady, um, whose father, actually, I never met Paul Brady, but I grew up working in the off-license that was attached to the pub that the family owned, like when I was 17, 18. Paul Brady's father, also called Paul, would come in once a week for a bottle of whiskey, and he would talk your ear off. He used to be a, he used to be a history teacher. So uh, this one is for for, for Paul Junior and Paul Senior. Let's go with um Trick or Treat. Oh, actually no, let's go with Nobody Knows off the album Trick or Treat because that's probably the most popular song on that album. Maybe his most popular song overall. You're listening to Irish Radio Canada. We're chatting with Jazz Gorman. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Irish Radio Canada. We're having a chat with Jazz Gorham. Jazz is Toronto-based from the north of Ireland, originally, and um, migrated from Belfast. Uh, Queens uh, studied at Queens, graduated from there, went to Japan, and from Japan, Toronto. Let's talk um, jazz from um, the north of Ireland to Japan. <laughs> again, um, Japan has a very strong culture in itself absolutely yeah i mean i had two years after queens where i worked in the northern ireland civil service i got through into their middle management straight from university program and it was um and and no offense to anybody working in the public sector but it just sucked the life out of me i just felt that that was a a, a grind you know just just processes there was nothing no real creativity or work happening that was um satisfying so after a couple of years i just wanted a break and i had a friend who had university friend who had uh, been living in Japan for about two years. He's teaching English as part of this thing they have called the JET program, which is the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program. People from all over go there. And um, I didn't apply for the JET program because that would have meant waiting for another year to come by for the next school year. So he said, look, come stay with me. He lived in a city called Agio, which was in Saitama Prefecture, Saitama Province, if you like. But it was basically 30 minutes north of the center of Tokyo, so it was really close to Tokyo. And um, I got a job with an English school called Nova, which is basically teaching Japanese citizens and kids. They pay for English lessons, and um, it was a very common way to get over there quickly. They pay for your flight and everything like that. It was great. So 
went over there, worked with Nova for six months. It was a very corporate kind of environment, teaching English, weren't allowed to speak Japanese or learn Japanese. And it was shift work and it was okay to get there. But um, after a while, I was like, I need a Japanese experience. So I applied for a job with the local school board. And somehow, miraculously, I got a job as an English teacher teaching elementary school and junior high school kids as an English assistant, um, two different schools. So I did that for three years, and it was amazing. That's a real slice of Japanese culture right there every day, being the only foreigner in a completely Japanese structured environment. Um, learned Japanese by studying in my free time there. And, you know, kids are the best in Japan for teaching you Japanese because if you speak to them and you make a mistake, they'll laugh at you. But, of course, the adults would never do that. It's like very polite, layered of rules society. You know, you wear the mask in the public and you take it off when you go home and the public mask is conforming to all the societal norms. So that was great. And um I met my wife, future wife, while I was there. She's from here in the greater Toronto area. So she extended my stay because I was getting ready to leave at that point. But um, I stayed for another two and a half, three years. And after finishing up with the schools, after doing three years, I got a job working for a consulting company based in Tokyo. And um, I did gigs at Honda, teaching Honda Jet and Honda Formula One engineers English, which was fascinating. Um, to see that environment with they're all wearing their white coats and suits and the amazing cafeteria. And, you know, it's like, uh, in a, in a, in a respectful way, it's like watching ants at work, you know, how like just proficient they were at everything, even going from A to B. Um, did a stint for two years at Itochu, which is one of the biggest trading companies in Japan. They trade everything from pot noodles to interballistic or intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, basically helping their executives prepare for life. They're about to move overseas, be stationed for years, or how to get a foot up in meetings with their North American counterparts because they're too polite and getting sort of um, dominated. So techniques and stuff like that. It was kind of interesting work. And, you know, um, I just loved Japan a lot. I, I like the fact that I spoke the language. You get a lot more out of it instantly. Um, I think uh, that made me stay and stay and stay. The fact that you're able to communicate on a daily basis with the general public really does make a huge difference. There are people there I know who have been there for 10, 12 years. They don't really speak much Japanese. And for them, it's a different experience that mm-hmm. they're enjoying, you know. But um, for me, being able to communicate and, you know, have Japanese people be surprised that who's this big brown foreigner suddenly speaking Japanese to me and then actually sitting down and having a beer with them. And yeah, I did that so many times. It was fantastic. But so tell go, go back go to your, you know, going back to your upbringing, given that we talked about earlier on that the North of Ireland is very much a bipolar society. Hmm. So here now you transition from that into a different cultural society and again given that you were growing up in the north of ireland through the lens of a third party in some ways Mm -hmm. how would you define japanese society relative to something like the north it's a really good question i think i could probably think about that and give you five different answers but arriving from northern ireland into japan for me, wasn't as big a shock maybe as it would be someone who was Irish by roots because having been that third-party culture in Northern Ireland, it was kind of like lifetime of preparation for moving to somewhere like Japan and being on the outside. So it didn't really bother me 
Uh, it was like something that didn't feel alien to me. The, of course, the language and the smells and everything else that was like intoxicating, it was new. But the actual position of me in that society, it was um kind of a, a, analogous to like what I had experienced growing up. But in terms of comparing the cultures of the north of Ireland to Japan, I think they're they're opposite ends of the spectrum in many ways. You know, there's Japanese people are very reserved in, in the public face, but you get to know Japanese people there as outgoing and as mad as any as, as you and me, you know. Um and um they don't show it. There's no I mean people have heard all the all the tropes about Japan before. Look, there's no litter anywhere. That's the first thing that hits you when you arrive in Japan. It's like it's completely spotless everywhere you go. People carry their rubbish with them. Um there's Absolute adherence to societal rules, being on time, not being aggro towards anybody. There's lots of street drinking. I guess that's analogous to Northern Ireland. They're not afraid to drink in public and they enjoy a drink, but the, the, the behavior is completely different. There's no wild in the, you, you're not getting in anybody's space, even whenever you're drinking in public or whatever, you know. So that, that, that was the biggest difference is that, they're having their cake and eating it too in some respect. Whereas, you know, back home, you, if you're from Ireland or Northern Ireland, you know, you see like people drunk or whatever in the street that's like, um, or having a drink or whatever. It's usually accompanied by sort of some sort of behavior that makes maybe people feel uncomfortable. I've had that situation a bunch of times growing up in Ireland. I'm sure anybody has, right? But you don't get that in Japan. So it's constant safety and security is definitely something that makes Japan stand out that there's no imminent sense of having to watch yourself. You know? So then, so then as a foodie, you must have enjoyed it. Oh my God. It was, it was heaven. I mean, I like cultures where there's specializing in things is put on a pedestal. You know, you go to Japan for something to eat more often than not, that restaurant serves one kind of food. The, the, they make ramen and that's all they make. These guys make yakitori on a stick, three different kinds. That's all they make for 20 years. They're just amazing at it. That's the, the, the very famous, uh, sushi documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, you know, that's all he did for 25, 30 years. So I'm into like mastery, like watching people be really good at stuff. Doesn't matter if it's a musician, if it's a cook, if it's a linguist, you know, to sort of absorb yourself in the, in, in what somebody's done to become so masterful at something. So, so that was great. But people think Japanese people only eat healthy. They really don't. They eat in moderation. They're like the French in that sense. You know, they'll eat, they'll eat, they'll eat the junk, but they'll be moderated by having a balanced diet for the rest of the time. So, so, um, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about discipline in Japan. And we'll talk about a bit more when we get to the food, turn about food, and if you include that in your culinary um, stuff on, on Instagram and Facebook. So then um, after that, uh, you you say you met your, what was to be your future wife, and she kept you, uh, encouraged you to stay for an additional two and a half years. So, so It was more a case of, more a case of like, let's, we didn't know what we were going to do, so we just kept it going. At least we were together, you know. Um, we were talked about going to Ireland at one point, but um, I think I had my heart set on Canada too, so it wasn't that wasn't really a tough decision. So when you just say your heart set in Canada, why, or what was it about? I had visited Canada as a kid, like nine, ten years old. I have cousins in BC on the west coast, and um, it made a big impression of me, on, on me, um, the country, the food, the vibe. And then just growing up, you know, being a fan of 
Trudeau, not Justin Trudeau, his dad and the sort of um, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I read that in school and it was just an amazing piece of like freedom legislation that I thought, wow, this is an amazing country. And then understanding the story of immigration sort of precipitated by Pierre Trudeau that sort of turned Canada around and made it into the kind of powerhouse that it is today. Um, the multi, there's a sort of multi-ethnic mega diversity of the greater Toronto area and, 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 and Vancouver as well. These are all things that were huge to me. I, I like diversity. You sort of get that, right? From like a Punjabi boy born in Northern Ireland, moved to Japan, you know, wife is Guyanese. So, um, that is probably the main thing. Also just the opportunity in the economy and stuff like that as well. Um, definitely played a part. So Jazz, you said you studied the, um, charter. That's, uh, where just, where was that and how was that part of the curriculum? So it wasn't part of the curriculum, actually. I had a teacher. And um, she knew that I was into Canada. I can't remember how she knew it. But, like, I told people often, like, I'd love to live in Canada. I've been saying that for years since I was a teenager, basically. And um, she just introduced it to me, and she got me a copy of it and photocopied it. And I'm not going to lie, I didn't read it from cover to cover. But uh, she sat down, and we talked about it, and she highlighted some things. And just one of those good teachers, you know, was in, like, the sixth form study. She would have come in and handed that to me. So, um yeah, that's uh, that's basically where I learned about it and learned about who Pierre Trudeau was and so on and so forth. And look, I wouldn't say that I'm a raving lefty or anything like that, but I'm definitely more on the socially liberal spectrum of belief. And I think um, all those sort of things sort of uh, combined to sort of make Canada somewhere that I wanted to be. And just lucky that I met my wife and she happened to be from here and the things developed. I don't know, kismet, as they say in uh, Sanskrit or Indian languages. So you moved over here, what, in... Um, 2010. 2010. October 2010, aye. A good time. Well, you, where you were going, not too bad. I know when we were immigrating, we were told, don't bother coming until May, uh, until the snow melts. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I got married before we moved in the January, before that, in January 2010, here. We flew from... And, Oh my God, we got married in Toronto in a restaurant called La Maquette and the hotel was around the corner and it was like minus 25 that day and a huge wind and I thought I was going to die. And my mother had come over and she was like, I don't know why you want to live here. I don't know, we were, and I didn't have a jacket because I was wearing my suit for the wedding and, and walking from the, the hotel to the thing. My wife was just wearing her wedding dress. Oh. And uh, I swear, and my, my friend John had come over from Japan. He's from Newry in, uh, in, in Armagh. Um, and uh, he, he, he was like, my head feels like a block of ice, man. What are you doing? But, um, yeah, no, despite the cold and despite how off-putting it was, I was still definitely um, very happy to come here in October. And were you coming to a job or were you coming cold turkey? Cold turkey, I, I had school. Very, very cold turkey. Freezing turkey. I had, um, I had school booked. I went to George Brown College here in uh, Toronto for a year. I did a post-grad in HR. Um, and honestly... I didn't even know I wanted to work in HR. I was just like, right, let's get here. Let's see the lay of the land. Stacy got a job right away. She's very resourceful like that. And um, we got an apartment in Toronto. And, um, yeah, halfway through that year, I kind of realized that um, I think recruiting could be the thing for me. I had been kind of semi, 
sort of approached a couple of times in Japan by friends of friends who were like, I've heard that like you could be a really good recruiter. You're like a good salesman and you got a good personality. We need people, especially foreigners for IT recruiting. I sort of held off because I heard like these guys work crazy hours in Japan to me was like a working holiday basically. But um, no, halfway through that, I realized that I think I want to get into recruitment. And uh, that's what happened after I finished my course. Basically I had an internship or whatever you want to call it, a placement. I forget what they say it now, but um, at a, a at a very small staffing agency in Bay Street, two employees. I did that for a few months, and then I got a job with a recruitment agency in Toronto called GuruLink. They're a tech recruitment agency. I worked there for two years, did well, managed a bunch of clients, made a lot of placements, did RPO, like recruitment inside the client as an internal recruiter um, for a company called Wave, who have since been acquired by H&R Block for $500 million, but they were very early in their sort of um, – just got their Series A funding at that time. That was really exciting. So yeah, I kind of fell into tech recruitment and um it's something that uh that um I'm still doing today. So arriving in Toronto from Japan, growing up in the north of Ireland into a, another culture. And very much a, a multiculture. Into a double culture actually because my wife is West Indian, right? So yeah. into her family culture and as well as the wider culture of Canada slash Toronto because I know Toronto is maybe a different to the rest of the country but yeah by that stage I felt like I was a bit of a pro you know like uh, dropping into cultures is like uh, doesn't really bother me anymore in terms of being a challenge I like it and given that Canada is far from bicultural um, there's uh, they might be bilingual but not bicultural mm-hmm. that's again Toronto is very much multicultural so uh, the patchwork quilt um, means that nobody really stands out yeah, I like that. You know, that's one thing I didn't like. One thing I didn't like about the Japan experience was standing out a lot. You know, some some people love to stand out. They thrive on it. I like to be a little bit more of a, a bit more of an insider if I can be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think growing up in a small town of 10,000 people like Straban, I mean, I don't think my brothers would thrive in the big city because they grew up in a small town and they stayed there. Right, but I, but I left and got a taste of it in Belfast, and then Japan, and now Toronto. And um, while I love going back home, I do get a little bit bored after a while. I feel like I need more action around me, more liveliness, a bit more diversity. Although Ireland is getting quite diverse now, it's um, it's great to see. Every time I go back, I see I see more and more diversity for sure. So, Jazz, let's take uh, another musical break here. What are you, what are we going to play? All right, so. This is a band that I have been listening to quite a bit to, and they're uh, lads from Dublin. They're called Fontaine's DC, mm-hmm. and they did a live album, live from, uh, yeah, Kilmenham Jail in Dublin. Oh, right. Okay, live from Kilmenham. Right. Yeah, and the song is called Televised Mind, and it's, uh-huh. a, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say heavy, but it's uh, definitely kind of intense, but I love it. I listen to it a lot. Even my kids like it, and they're little. Okay. You are listening to Irish Radio Canada. We will be back with you after Fontaine's DC. Welcome back to Irish Radio Canada. We're chatting with Jazz Gurham and uh, Jazz just picked there Fontaine's DC and that was from the album Live, Live at Kilmainham Jail. Jazz, next piece of music, uh, I'm going to introduce you to Nava. And, uh, an interesting band. Uh, two guys from Ballyhonus uh, and we used to live in Ballyhonus. Part of my youth had me in Ballyhonus and uh, uh, the other two are um, Persian. It's our, I'm not sure exactly what, but it's described as Persian-Irish fusion. 
and uh, brilliant music. Love it. Love um, it. The story of they, they've they're getting a lot of traction. These guys, and um, so uh, they've they've got some awards as well. Um, music in the family is is music important in the family? No musicians in the family. Well, my daughters do piano lessons, but let's face it, they're little. Um, yeah. So there's not a note in the family's head, basically. My mother plays a bit of piano, but that was a hobby. But um, no, music's definitely very important to me. It has been constantly. I've, you know, um, went to my first concert, age 13, sneaked to Rage Against the Machine, age 13 years old in Ulster Hall in Belfast in 1992. And um, me and my friend Mal McKay, who now owns an excellent brewery in, in Armagh called Heaney, the Heaney Brewery Company. Um, his wife's uncle was Seamus Heaney. Um, so, so, so she was a Heaney. So, uh, any uh, people in Ireland listening and you want a really good craft beers, check out the Heaney's. He'll uh, love me for like giving him a plug there. Um, no, Sneak to Rage Against the Machine, age 13, having read the lyrics cover to cover, you know, sort of politicized by that band a little bit in terms of shaping my, uh, opinions about things that, per- that persist to this day. Obviously, some things change and soften and, and you learn stuff, but, um, yeah, right the way through. In university, I was, I've always been into electronic music too. So, you know, I did a lot of hopping around Europe, um, going to different festivals, whether it's techno or house or drum and bass and things like that. Always going to live gigs, spiritualized, super furry animals, Jurassic five. These are just off the top of my head gigs. Like, so, um, that's one thing I missed since the pandemic. We used to go like a few times a year, Stacey and I as well, you know, when someone good would be playing. Still going to a lot of comedy gigs, though. That never stops, but um, I miss going to live music, for sure, as much as I used to. And music is a great leveler. Social, like, uh, you know, it cuts through culture. It sure cuts, does. Cuts, it cuts through racism. Sure it cuts does. through also all the things that can divide society. Now, it can also do it as well, but when it's when it is used maliciously. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And within the family, you've had two kids and a dog? Two kids and a golden retriever. And uh, my wife, yeah. Here we are in Ajax, Ontario, living in the heart of sub- sub- suburbia. So given your growing up experience, the knowledge that um, you had of your parents' and grandparents' struggle, um, your kids are growing a different experience. Oh, completely. I mean, even I felt, you know, first generationers guilt of what the your parents went through to get here and what their childhoods were like. And I think it's the difficulties are tend to get if you're lucky diluted through the generations. But yeah, my kids have no idea. What's funny is we're having this conversation a little bit about my past and heritage today. My eldest daughter at the moment is doing a work for a presentation for school about her heritage and 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 and. and She's only nine, fourth grader, but um, it's pretty hardcore. She has to memorize the whole thing, and it's talking about music, culture, family, history. So she's been asking me lots and lots of questions over the past week as she sort of puts her project together about, you know, what what, what are my ancestors on your side? So I explained to her, you know, on my side, your ancestors. So you're you're half Jat. Jat, it's cast is the wrong word. It's a subsect of like. Uh, Sikhs, but also Hindus have it as well. Jats were historically landowners, farmers, soldiers. So my mother's Jat, my father's Jat. So my ancestors are mostly farmers and soldiers, soldiers for the Raj, soldiers against the Raj, just military people. 
and a lot of farmers like that still exists today with my family in India, my um, cousins and what have you. Some of them still owning land and farming in that. So, uh, yeah, she learned about that. She's asking about what music. And I was like, well, Punjabis play this big drum called a dole that you hit on both sides with this curved stick and it makes a big sound. And there's a style of music called Bhangra or Bangra, as people say, that uh, is played at festivals, at weddings, and it makes you want to dance. Um, and, you know, she's absorbing all the cultural stuff from my wife's side, too. She's Portuguese Guyanese, so it's kind of rich and, 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 and detailed on that side. And it sort of has given me pause for thought, you know, about what we are and how, a Cana- what, how Canadian a family we actually are in terms of the diversity and you know, we promote respect for all cultures and everything in our house too, you know, like many, like most people do. And, um, yeah, it makes me think their upbringing and stuff is very, very different, even from mine. You know, I grew up with this color face in the northwest of Ireland in the 80s and 90s. You know, you got to learn how to handle yourself or detract a bully or do whatever. I'm glad that they don't have to do that, at least not in the way that I did, because, of course, these problems do exist in with kids these days and manifesting in different ways usually now but um yeah no i feel blessed to be able to give them that but there is a tinge of regret that they're not more immersed in the punjabi style of the culture because my family are all in ireland and india she gets a lot of the west indian side from my wife's family being here naturally and that's amazing I do have family here but not particularly close and the ones that i am close with i mentioned they're on the west coast mm-hmm. And I'm not, look, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. I could take them to the Gurdwara and I could do this, but, uh, work and time and maybe be a little bit of like, uh, you know, middle-aged man selfishness or tiredness. It just doesn't happen as much as I would like it to. So there's a tinge of regret there. They definitely get the Irishness out of me between the accent and the food and me talking about stuff. And, you know, they, they know my couple of my friends that they, I, I talk to a messenger, the kids talk to them and everything, all Irish, Irish. So. Nina kept coming up to me going, but you're talking about this stuff, but you're Irish. Why are you talking about the Indian stuff? And I'm like, love, I grew up in Ireland and I feel Irish, but inside I feel more Punjabi just because I'm first generation, right? You'll, you're going to feel Canadian more than you're going to feel Punjabi or Guyanese, and that's fine too. But um, yeah, there's a little bit of, not regret, but I wish that uh, they had a little bit more immersion into my culture. Sometimes I feel like I need it too because... It does get diluted with me as well. My Punjabi is definitely not what it used to be. Just it's a muscle, right, in your brain. You don't practice it. Um, and on that, though, uh, Daz, you would, to some degree, have the opportunity in a multicultural society like Toronto where there must be a strong Punjabi community. Oh, absolutely. There's a huge one, particularly in Brampton there, just west of Toronto near Mississauga. That's Brown Town, they call it. It's like I've got so many second and third cousins there, and anybody I know that moves here moves there. But we're kind of on the other side of the city. And um, even though I'm a recruiter and I'm here sort of espousing, answering your questions, I am kind of an introverted guy. I don't go out looking for things necessarily as much as other people might. So I don't know if it's laziness or introversion or what you might call it. So my wife is more... She she orders books from Amazon about Sikhism and about being Punjabi, and she says, like, let's get them Punjabi lessons. So uh, she's sort of nudging me out the door to sort of take them because, of course, I'm the one that has to take them. So, yeah, it'll happen. I mean, they, they know their culture. They eat right. the food. I talk about home. I talk about speaking Punjabi. We learn Punjabi words together, all of that. But it could be a little more for sure. Let's talk food. Hmm. 
where did you get the, aside from eating it, where did you get the um, interest in cooking and sharing the, the, the different menus? Grew up in a family, Austin, where every meal was discussed and dissected and decided upon before it was actually cooked. So just being in that environment and seeing everybody cook in my family, my brothers both cook, my mother's a wonderful cook, my dad's an amazing cook. And I didn't do a lot of cooking growing up in that house, but um, my sister-in-law, she lived with us. We have an extended family. My One of my brothers married an Indian girl, and uh, they stayed in the familial home, big home in Straban. So she, really good cook as well. And um, from I think that was the seed, to be honest with you. And I'd go to university, and I'd cook for my friends. You know, I was the guy who made feeds for everybody because I just liked it. And that sort of followed me to Japan. And I was learned how to cook some of the Indian food that I made at home, two or three dishes. Like I was a two or three dishes staple guy. Of course, the spuds and all, but that's easy. But like actual cooking until, until I was maybe, what, what year is it now? 22 and 23. So 2015 or 16, I started taking it seriously, reading cookbooks. And I don't know, I just slipped into it and I loved it and turned out I'm pretty good at it and I have a good palate and I can t- taste things that aren't there and that are there. So, um, yeah, and I mean, it's my meditation time. You know, some people find it hard to practice mindfulness, but for me, there's nothing like cooking to, to, to keep you mindful because you're always doing something and focused on it. And I think meant for my mental health, it really helps. I enjoy a little bit of the showmanship and putting together a good picture if the light is good. That's why my Instagram has pictures, you know. Um, and and do, um, do, do you share the recipe? If anybody asks for a recipe, I will attempt to get it to them. If it's one that I have used from on, online, I will link it right away. If it's my own, I'll give them a quick synopsis or a, a, maybe a two weeks later when I have five minutes, I'll realize I haven't put the recipe out for them. Um, I was talking about the idea of doing like a YouTube video channel of cooking and everything, but I think I already spend enough time cooking and I, and I, and I don't want to turn it into something that is that because I enjoy it for what it is. I enjoy the cooking and the eating and the occasional photo, but right. um, that's it. But yeah. uh, no. Jazz, we're going to wrap up. I need to keep an eye on time. And as I say, we're going to share Nava um, with the, the listener. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time. But before we do that, I want to make sure we give people the where they can find you. And on Facebook, it's uh, jazzington.jazzworthy. Oh, no, I, I, that, that's an old one. I think well, that's, that's, the, one. that's probably in the URL. That was in the days where I didn't want people to see. But now I realize I'm a middle-aged man, not really posting anything controversial. Okay. So on Facebook, on Facebook, I'm just my name, Jazz Gurham. You'll find me. I'm probably the only Jazz Gurham on Facebook. Um, and, uh, Instagram, Jazz Gurham and Eat of, Eats of Jazz. Yeah, and, with the uh, And are you avoiding Twitter? Are you out there on Twitter? Ah, I have a very legacy Twitter account. I'm... I try to limit my social media, to be to be honest, Austin. If it was beneficial for work, I might use Twitter. But um, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not part of the Twitterverse. I, I can I can relate. Hmm. <laughs> I, I use it because I feel for what I do. Um, right there, you go. Yeah, there's a part of me would be very much gone from Facebook and Twitter, um, except for because of this. I find Facebook keeps me connected to Ireland. More than anything, most of my friends are in Belfast. Um, I'm in I'm in messenger groups with them, but then we share stuff on Facebook. That's just that's mostly why I use Facebook. It is useful for me to keep in touch because, you know, I'm here in Canada, but most of my friends and family are in Ireland and in Japan. So for me, it is useful in that respect, and that's generally what I use 
Facebook for updating friends and family and that kind of use. But um, look, between the Instagram, which I just used to drop food pics, I'm not really on there. I don't spend a lot of time on social media. Um, LinkedIn for work, I'm in that all day long. You can find me on LinkedIn too. Please add me, Jazz Gurham. Um, yeah. That's, Jazz, uh, thanks a million. It's been fantastic chatting. Likewise, Austin, the time went by. Thank you so much and uh, keep in touch for sure. Indeed.